0: Today on the Closet Champion podcast, we talk about the most important event to happen in November. No, I'm not talking about Thanksgiving and I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking about the Survivor Series. So many amazing and amazingly terrible moments have happened on this show, but today I'm going to talk about the 10 best traditional Survivor Series matches in the history of this incredible event. This is the Closet Champion podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Closet Champion Podcast. I am your host, the reigning, rarely defending, highly disputed champion of wrestling podcasts, Mike Mueller. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the 10 best traditional Survivor Series matches that have happened throughout the years. As always, this list was compiled entirely on my own, so it is a very biased list. However, there are some universal truths to great Survivor Series matches, and they will show up throughout the duration of this podcast. The most memorable Survivor Series matches tend to be the ones that continue great feuds, debut a new character, have a major heel or face turn, and traditionally go a lot longer than a standard match. If you're listening to this podcast, I assume you're fairly familiar with the Survivor Series, but in case you're not, here's a little bit of a backstory on it. The Survivor Series was created in 1987 as a way to combat the first pay-per-view put on by the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions, Starcade. Now, Starkade had been around since 1983, predating WrestleMania by two whole years, but it had always been a closed-circuit broadcast, not pay-per-view, meaning that you would have to go somewhere where they would be showing it, like a movie theater or a bar or a, a arena, wherever they're doing it. It wasn't something that you ordered in your home. Now, in order to compete with Starcade, the WWF decided to introduce the Survivor Series event and actually held it on the very same night as Starcade, running direct competition. The WWF also used their leverage and limited the amount of pay per view providers that would carry Starcade by not allowing anybody that carried Starcade to carry WrestleMania 4. Therefore, if they did not carry the Survivor Series exclusively, they would not have access to carrying WrestleMania, which was a huge buy rate for the pay-per-view providers and cable companies alike. A lot of people think this was very petty, myself included, but if that's what it took to get this amazing pay-per-view concept up and running, then I'm not complaining. Now, what made and makes the Survivor Series so interesting and unique is that, especially in the beginning, it only showcased... Team elimination matches, which is a fairly novel concept at the time. There were no title matches. There were no tag team, like just two on two, one fall tag team matches. Uh, Rather, all of those teams were in Survivor Series matches instead. So the WWF and Intercontinental Champions, Hulk Hogan and Honky Tonk Man, respectively at the time, got to captain their own team, and they would feud with people that they were feuding with over their titles. So Honky Tonk Man was the captain of one team, and Randy Savage was the captain... Of the opposing team because those were the two that were kind of battling over the Intercontinental title at the time. Same thing with the main event with Hulk Hogan. Andre the Giant captained the other team because we were in the same year as WrestleMania 3 and coming off of that big feud. So this was their way of working in storylines without having one on one matches. It was a risky strategy, but it definitely paid off. And I think the novelty of the idea, along with the WWF sort of holding cable companies hostage, led Survivor Series to more than double the number of buys that uh, the NWA received for Starcade. And from that point forward, the Survivor Series has been a mainstay and they've never looked back. Now, if somehow you're listening to this and you've never seen a Survivor Series match, I've sort of explained it already, but it's essentially teams of mainly five, sometimes four, facing each other until one team is completely eliminated. The winning team can have anywhere from one to all five members still remaining. Now, let's address the elephant in the room as far as the concept of Survivor Series. If wrestling were real, and these guys are really competing, then the very first Survivor Series match from 1987 would probably still be going today. Because the concept of having four teammates on the outside of the ring just watching as one of their teammates gets pinned is absurd. And many wrestlers and wrestling insiders can't seem to get past that, Arn Anderson being one of them. But to me, if we can overcome Vince McMahon kind of being murdered in a limousine explosion and then returning to Monday Night Raw like two weeks later, surely we can get over some dudes standing on the outside of the ring and not helping their partners. So, without further ado, now that we know what the Survivor Series is and how it kind of started, let's get into my top 10 traditional Survivor Series matches of all time. Two quick honorable mentions before we get to the formal list. The first one is the match from 1991 featuring Ric Flair, Ted DiBiase, the Mountie, and the Warlord versus the British Bulldog, Roddy Roddy Piper, Bret Hart, and Virgil. Uh this should be a great match. You've got six really good workers and you've got the look of the warlord and the momentum that Virgil had at the time. So there's a lot of hot, hot action going on in this. Ric Flair is brand new to the company. Um, the finish was a bit of a schmaz and that ruins it for me. Uh, I, I, I'm trying not to give results away just in case people haven't seen this. I want you to go out and watch it for yourself. Uh, I might end up ruining one or two by accident. I apologize in advance. Um, But this match to me was really all about Ric Flair, showcasing him. New to the company. He's featured throughout the match. Um, The real world's champion concept was great. I think it was the first time that WWF even acknowledged the existence of WCW. So it's very historic in that regard. Flair had come over from WCW. Actually, I think it was still just Jim Crockett Promotions in 1991. But he had come over uh, with the title, the big gold belt that everyone's familiar with. And that was a big deal. He was not supposed to have it. But he said, screw you, I'm paying for the insurance on this thing, so in my opinion, it's mine, and I'm keeping it. So he was totting this belt around on WWF TV, and it was the title belt for their biggest rival. That's a huge get. Uh, in the future, WCW would counter with people like Alondra Blaze coming on and literally throwing the women's uh, the WWF women's title into the garbage on their Uh, broadcast so this is something that's gone back and forth and the concept of leaving with a belt also uh, led into probably the most famous Survivor Series match of all time the Montreal Screwjob with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels so this was kind of the first time we saw that angle of kind of flaunting the other team the other teams the other companies uh, prize on different on the competing airwaves So for that reason, it was very unique and very interesting. Uh, I thought, like I said, the Schmaz finish sort of ruins this for me, Uh, but I thought that overall, everyone played their part really well. People got lots of time in. Listening to how over Roddy Roddy Piper was is incredible. That dude was over like Grover, and he was so good. Uh, I have a very inexplicable affinity for the Warlord, and I don't know why, but I like him, and... Uh, I will be bringing him up again in this podcast. That shows you how much I like the Warlord. He's in two of these matches. Uh, But him playing sort of the muscle to the cowardly Ric Flair character worked really, really well. And I always liked... Uh, Warlord and British Bulldog their little 1991 feud I thought that was really fun Uh, but this match was really good lots of action a bunch of really really good workers and like I said the two people that in my opinion weren't good workers one had a great look and one had huge momentum so this match all the way around has a lot of excitement a lot of energy to it and that carries the match and if it weren't for the shitty kind of finish this would be cemented in my top 10 list but as it is it stays on the outside as an honorable mention the other honorable mention is from 1995, the main event, the wildcard match, which was a really fun concept. This was the first time you had good guys and bad guys on both teams. Um, it set up the tension for the upcoming uh, British Bulldog Bret Hart Yokozuna split that was in the works. Uh, you had so many great workers in that match, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, along with, like I said, Brett Hart or, uh, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. You had some other people, uh, Ahmed Johnson, Yokozuna, Psycho Sid, Dean Douglas. These weren't the best wrestlers. Shane Douglas slash Dean Douglas is a good wrestler, but his run in the WWF was awful. Um, uh, this for being so unique and again, being one of the first of its kind, should be on the list but it's not on the list for one very very specific reason and that is the ridiculously horrible officiating call that was done during this match so during this match at one point Sid is in the ring against Razor Ramon he tags Shawn Michaels and holds Razor Ramon so Shawn Michaels can deliver sweet chin music Shawn Michaels is a good guy Razor Ramon is a good guy uh, Psycho Sid is a bad guy in this moment, but Sean's on the same team with Sid. So he says, sure, I'll take the shot. Sean goes for the sweet chin music. Razor among ducks. Sean Michaels accidentally hits Psycho Sid. And then Razor pins Psycho Sid, the guy who just tagged himself out of the ring, not 20 seconds ago, referee Tim White. Shame on you. What were you not paying attention to? How was that tag? First of all, if that tag, if you didn't see that tag and it wasn't legal, Shawn Michaels shouldn't have been in the ring and he should have been disqualified. If you did see the tag, which I know you did because I saw you see it, I seen it you shouldn't have never made that count. Like, that was such a stupid oversight that had no purpose or meaning. It didn't lead to anything bigger. Sid didn't come out on Monday Night Raw the next day and, you know, call for Tim White's job, which is what I would have done, because that was a huge, huge miscarriage of justice. I'm still not over it, as you can tell. It happened 15 years ago, but, it, oh my god, was it? oh my God, 25 years ago, Jesus Christ, I'm old. It happened 25 years ago. I'm still not over it. You shouldn't be over it either, but you should go watch the match because besides from that one little moment, it's actually a very, very fun match. And it's cool to see heels and faces sort of on the same team. In more recent years, that's become a standard, but at the time, that was very, very unique. Alright, so honorable mentions out of the way. Let's start the formal list. Number 10. It's a match from 1997. You've got the Nation of Domination versus Ken Shamrock, the aforementioned Ahmed Johnson, and the Legion of Doom. And this, to me, is on the list because it checks a lot of boxes for what a good Survivor Series match should do. A good Survivor Series match should not just be an exhibition of guys fighting each other. It should have purpose it should have reason it should progress a story and this progressed the story of the nation of domination and their seriousness as a legitimate faction inside the wwf uh you had ken shamrock getting his singles push he was new to the scene and was making some big waves i never really agreed with it but uh it certainly got legs even if only on the mid-card level uh, this is november of 97 and this to me is the biggest thing that i took away from this match upon re-watching it you had great spots all throughout uh, a lot of sensical eliminations it, it very balanced it was good in that regard uh, but what stood out to me the most is this is november of 1997 a year from now the rock is going to be the wwf champion and knowing that they've got this blue chip guy in their back pocket who they're just starting to let grow and expand and really break out into his own. This shows you how much faith they had in Ken Shamrock because Ken Shamrock and The Rock go at it for a long time in this match. And Ken Shamrock, I think, along with Ronda Rousey, are the two best, uh, WWF competitors that started in MMA and moved over to wrestling. They just get it. They got it from day one. And while Shamrock was certainly green and probably not the safest guy to work with, he did really, really good. Uh, There were some great moments. We get to see the people's elbow before it was the people's elbow. It was just a move that The Rock did, and it looked great. Uh, It's almost certainly my favorite Ken Shamrock match, which, like I said, is not a very long list. But just seeing the chemistry that he had... With, with Farouk and more specifically with The Rock, it's just very entertaining for that reason alone. Just to see The Rock and Ken Shamrock go at it uh, is really, really fun. Number nine on the list is uh, from 2019, just last year. It's the women's five-on-five-on-five on five on five triple threat match. Now, in looking back on this, so <clears throat> I studied a lot for you guys. I put in a lot of hours Watching the WWE Network. I literally went back, starting in 2019, working my way backwards. I watched every single traditional elimination match in its entirety, just so I could come up with this list. And that included watching a lot of very, very bad women's, your divas, I should say, matches from the 2000s and the 2010s. Now, since we've started taking uh, women's wrestling more seriously... We've had a lot of good Survivor Series matches, but in reality, I could have probably picked any match from 2016 all the way through 2019. All the matches kind of look the same and feel the same. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that the story kind of plays out the same way. The reason why I picked 2019 versus any of the other ones is because of the five-on-five-on-five on five on five concept, introducing NXT as a third brand competing along with Raw and SmackDown, I thought was a really great idea. You got tons of action. You have a constant triple threat match, which is fun. Uh, There's going to be some sloppy moments because, again, there's so many moving parts, uh, but that happens, you know. And this match, to me, was all about Rhea Ripley. This was Rhea Ripley's coming out party. The whole weekend was her coming out party. She had war games the night before, which that women's war games match was great. Uh, You had a great uh, turn uh, with Dakota Kai, going into that really, really fun. Um, and you had a lot of internal fighting within teams because, again, you have heels and faces on the same team. It's going to create for some fun spots. Uh, this go, this is not anything new. This goes back all the way to Bad News Brown in 1988, 1989. But it's great to see. Uh, it's also great to see this is another moment, and I'm never going to pass up this moment, To express what a wonderful, true professional Charlotte is. And everyone that says that they're sick of seeing Charlotte always get these great spots. In this match, Charlotte does a job for Lacey Evans. Lacey fucking Evans. And this was a year ago. Okay, This this is Lacey Evans with one less experience in the ring. So... I think it's just a great moment of seeing Charlotte being willing to put anybody over. A lot of great moments, a great spotlight on Rhea Ripley, a lot of fun. This, to me, is the best women's match that there has been as far as a traditional Survivor Series match goes. Uh, Number eight on the list, we've got uh, Team Authority versus Team Cena, or Team Sent, as my uh, autocorrect tells me. But I'm pretty sure it's Team Cena. Uh, from 2013 this was a lot of fun you had the uh luke harper eric rowan feud but really what you had was these four guys big show john cena ryback and dolph ziggler all having this simultaneous feud with the quote-unquote authority this was leading up to the daniel bryan um wrestlemania yeslemania as it's called uh but this was a little bit before that so the authority was still a really really strong figure Really, the authority, as far as in-ring work goes, was Seth Rollins. So it's really all these guys that had these individual feuds with Seth Rollins kind of coming together and trying to uh, do their thing and overtake the man, which is always good. Uh, you had a you had a heel turn, a sort of nonsensical heel turn, but regardless, you got a heel turn in there. Uh, the only person in this match that I felt like didn't really belong was Mark Henry, uh, but Mark Henry, being an outlying factor, wasn't really much of... of and importance as far as the story of the match goes, he got out fairly early. Spoiler alert, well, too late for spoiler alert. Mark Henry gets eliminated early after that. It's pretty much smooth sailing with a consistent, cohesive storyline that we're trying to tell. We get a great um, attempt at overcoming the odds. You know, the good guys are down early. Can they overcome these odds? It's told in a great way, it's a lot of fun. Uh, this match was the Dolph Ziggler show. This was Dolph Ziggler's spotlight. To me, this and his ladder match against John Cena at TLC 2011, 2012, one of the two, I want to say, say 2011, uh, to me are probably the, the two best Dolph Ziggler matches just because they, they showcase him so well. This match is also gets a a big debut, which if you haven't seen it, I won't, I won't spoil it, but there's a big shocking, oh my god, this guy's here, uh, which made it really fun, and again, just a good fun match. And that's the key that's going to be the theme throughout this, is fun matches. The Survivor Series should be fun, more than any other pay-per-view to me. This is the one that's supposed to be just fun fun. And this was a great example of that. It told a good story, but it was really fun. Speaking of fun, let's go on to number seven. Uh, From 1989, we've got Rude's Brood versus Roddy's Rowdies. Rick Rude captaining his team with Mr. Perfect and the Fabulous Rougeau Brothers, and Rowdy Roddy Piper captaining his team with the Bushwhackers and Superfly Jimmy Snuka. This was uh, 89-90 and 91 all had four-on-four four Survivor Series matches. And I think 93 went back to five-on-five, five and we pretty much stayed that way ever since. Uh, but this was the first four-on-four four year, so it was good. You had a, an extra match in there. They had five of these matches. It made time go really fast and pick up really good. But this match in particular is so great because it was a complete contrast in styles between the two wrestlers. You had brawlers, And you had wrestlers, Rude's team, all very clean cut, pretty boy looking uh, country club kind of uh, blue chip prospect wrestlers, wrestlers. And then you had the crazy weirdo, non-traditional styles with uh, the Bushwhackers and Superfly Jimmy Snuka and Roddy Roddy Piper. He wasn't a really wrestler anyway. He was a brawler. Uh, rude and piper was a feud that i wish got more airtime uh it was sandwiched in between feuds uh, that uh, rick rude had with the ultimate warrior in both 89 and then later in 90 and then this was also the feud that happened shortly before roddy piper's very embarrassing feud with bad news brown where he painted half of his body black it was awkward uh, you also had the Rougeos and the Bushwhackers uh, kind of feuding with each other at this time. They feuded with each other a long time, and it was always hilarious and fun. Again, nothing that you're going to show someone as like a classic wrestling match, but it had a lot of funny spots. Uh, at this time, Mr. Perfect was still undefeated, so you had that storyline going. Jimmy Snuka was a huge fan favorite, even though he was well past his days of being on the top of the card from like, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, he's still, when that guy was introduced, everyone got up out of their seats. So you had a lot of fun characters in this. And the reason why this match has to be on my list is because maybe Savage versus Hogan at WrestleMania five, but I think this is the match I've seen more than any other match in my lifetime. I loved getting, renting this VHS from Blockbuster. It seems like every weekend and I would watch it and this was always a match that I made sure I watched two or three times. Again, it's just fun. It's relatively short, uh, but I'm sure this creates a real bias for me. But hey, it's my podcast and it's my list, and I love it, so it's on there. Uh, If you watch this match, I do encourage you... You have to watch the pre-match interviews that they do with both teams. Watch the whole pay-per-view because it's fun. But watch the pre-match interview. Uh, Rick Rude with his tights and explaining the tights is great. And Rowdy Piper is so entertaining. If you're not entertained by Rowdy Rowdy Piper, you should not be watching wrestling. There's no point because if that doesn't tickle you, then nothing will. Moving on to number six, we're going one year later, and this is the Million Dollar Team versus the Dream Team in 1990. And as far as the match goes, this isn't the best match, but this match is on the list for one very, very important reason. This was the debut of The Undertaker, and it was an iconic moment, a moment that still gets referenced to this day, and now that we're uh, closing in on 30 years of Undertaker and WWE is doing all of these things on their... Uh, network and running all of these specials uh, sidebar the Paul Bearer documentary is really good check that out if you have an hour please check that out it's it's really fantastic uh, but this was pre Paul uh, Undertaker was actually introduced by Brother Love also known as Bruce Pritchard uh, so that was kind of fun and interesting and kind of forget about that part uh, you have good workers on both sides Uh, But this really is about, along with The Undertaker's debut, this is really Bret Hart. This is Bret Hart's coming out party as a singles wrestler. He gets a great, probably about, I'd say gets about a good five minutes with Ted DiBiase going one-on-one at the end. And those two are some of the best in-ring storytellers that have ever existed. So they have a great little five-minute sort of mini one-on-one match. Um, There's a great moment at the end, uh, Bret Hart's work rate is incredible. And he gets this great little moment at the end where he sort of mouths something under his breath. And it, it's just it's one of those little things that Bret Hart does so well, that they don't even talk about it on commentary or anything. It's just a little thing that he does that draws my attention. Uh, if you want to talk to me about it privately, I'd love to, like I said, I'm trying not to spoil anything. So I don't want to say what I'm talking about but if you watch the match you'll know exactly what I'm talking about it's very obvious it's done right in front of the camera there's no way to miss it but for Bret Hart's coming out party and Undertaker's debut that alone gives this a very very special spot in WWE Survivor Series canon and folklore and for me it's one of the top 10 matches of all time for that reason Number five on the list, getting a little more recently, we're looking at Team Raw versus Team SmackDown from 2016. I really enjoyed this match, man. Uh, I gotta say, a lot of the stuff from the really from like five from like 2000. Six to 2015, a lot of it was not good, especially the Survivor Series matches. They weren't good. So this was really refreshing. This was, I think, the first really great match that they have had in the last 10 years. Uh, Having James Ellsworth, remember James Ellsworth? Having James Ellsworth as the mascot for Team SmackDown was hilarious. He was used in exactly the right role. And at the time, maybe I'm just looking at this with rose-colored glasses, at the time you're kind of like, okay, James Ellsworth, whatever, and you roll your eyes. Dude's funny, man, and as long as we're not trying to take him seriously, I see nothing wrong with James Ellsworth being around. I thought he was great. Uh, Orton was a member of the Wyatt family at this time, which was really interesting, and I kind of forgot about that time in his career. Uh, it made his, uh, win being part of the Wyatt family made his win at the next Royal Rumble and the run up to WrestleMania versus Bray Wyatt, all the more shocking. But the, that was before any of this, he was still sort of deeply entrenched in that. And we're all kind of wondering, I don't know about you. I kept waiting on him to turn. I never fully believed it, but every week he just was still with the Wyatts, still with the Wyatts. And you eventually started to go, Oh, maybe he really is. Wyatt family for life. Um, We obviously know that's not true now, but at this time, that was a really, really uh, big storyline that was happening. I loved having AJ Styles and KO as the champions in this match, not having a title match. Again, this goes back to the first few Survivor Series matches where the champs didn't have their own title match. They were captains of a team. So this was Kevin Owens and AJ Styles being the captains of their team. And what a great... I mean, Kevin Owens, Chris Jericho, Seth Rollins, Braun Strowman, Roman Reigns versus AJ Styles, Dean Ambrose, Bray Wyatt, Randy Orton, and Shane McMahon. Are you kidding me? Like, okay, full disclosure, the commentary on this match is rough to say the least, but the in-ring action is absolutely fantastic, and how could it not be with that lineup? Like, are you kidding me? Talk about 10 of the best, especially in this day and age, and I'm including Shane McMahon on that. I'm going to come back to Shane McMahon. Uh, but before I get too off track, one thing that I want to say, I think the WWE did really well with Survivor Series, and I've mentioned this before, is having faces and heels on the same team instead of just a traditional all-faces versus all-heels match. You're able to tell more stories with this mat, with this kind of match. You can have infighting. There's so many more things you can do. Uh, the crowd was in a great mood. Uh, sometimes they were nonsensical in some of the things that they were cheering. I'm not sure. Uh, But one of the things that stood out to me during this time is I don't think anybody was more hated in 2015, 2016 than Roman Reigns. Holy shit. Every time that dude was even in the ring for a second, just a sea of booze raining down on him. You couldn't, you couldn't overlook it. It was palpable, Uh, but it was still great. Anytime you get the crowd that into it and that engaged, that's just better for everybody. Uh, I love this match. I thought the pacing of the eliminations were really good. I thought using James Ellsworth as a foil to the then pretty unbeatable Braun Strowman was really awesome and clever. It was a great way to work around uh, Braun Strowman and how you were going to possibly get someone out from that match. uh Like it, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at that point to have anybody just straight up pin Braun Strowman. So the way they got Strowman eliminated, I thought, was really interesting. And again, circling back to Shane McMahon, given his lineage and how much we know about the McMahon family, which is sort of a lot and nothing all at the same time, but Shane McMahon might be the most believable worker in the business. And by that, I mean, he looks like he's completely blown up two minutes into a match, into this match. And given that he's a little bit older and he's not a quote unquote professional athlete, that's totally to be expected. And then the fact that he's red and sweaty and breathing hard five minutes into a match and then still goes on for another 12 minutes and does some crazy stunts the whole time. Like this is a guy that never needed any of this, but wanted all of it. And it totally comes across in everything that he does. I thoroughly enjoy watching Shane McMahon as a wrestler and as a personality minus Raw Underground props for trying, but that was a failure and we're finally past it. But Shane McMahon is one of, if not the most, underrated wrestlers of all time. Just because when you think of, he never had to do any of this. That dude never had to have a job in his life. And instead he went out and he did it. And he put his body on the line. Continues to put his body on the line for a business that he loves. I think it's just so cool. And it's so good. And this was uh, just a wonderful showcase for that. Moving on to number four, we've got the... 10-team tag-team elimination match from 1988. Uh, This was a great match for a lot of reasons. You get a double turn at the end, uh, heel turn and face turn with Demolition and the Powers of Pain, which is really cool. Uh, The Bolsheviks are in this match, and they suck, but it's pretty much their role to suck. Um, And then we also have perhaps the greatest jobber performance in the history of jobber performances with the conquistadors. Somehow they're there all the way to the end. It makes no sense, but it was great. Uh, the conquistadors, if you're not familiar with them, you shouldn't be, like I said, they were jobbers, but their legacy lived on, uh, Edge and Christian, uh, paid homage to them a lot throughout their career. And later Kurt Angle reprised the role of the conquistador in his feud with, I think it was Baron Corbin at the time. It was absolutely hilarious. Uh, Aside from those outliers of the Conquistadors and the Bolsheviks, all the other teams are absolutely, insanely talented in this match, including the Powers of Pain. Fuck you. Powers of Pain rule. Barbarian rules. It's amazing. On commentary, which is so important to a good match, you get Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon calling it, and they just have so many funny lines and and good spots. Their chemistry is great. and Like I said, Jesse's one-liners throughout it are really fun seeing this match, seeing the Rugeaus work in 1987, this match, they did a a 10 team elimination match as well. At that point, the Rugeaus were white meat baby faces. Now a year later, they're sort of condescending, uh, French Canadian heels and Talk about night and day like they totally forgettable in 1987 and in 1988, even they didn't, Even though they didn't get a ton of time in the ring, they really left their mark and they really stuck out to me as, as one of the more entertaining spots uh, in this match. Going out first sucks for them because they were such great in-ring workers and you hate to see them get out of there so early. But if you know the backstory between them and the British Bulldogs, not only does it make sense, it's actually pretty cool. There was a lot, a lot of real life heat between the Bulldogs and the Rougos, specifically between Dynamite Kid and Jacques Rougeau. And there was a lot, of, there was, things were coming to a head, to say the least. And for sort of fear of the Rougos' lives, they called in Audible, had the Rougos get eliminated early kept the Bulldogs in the match for a long time so the Rujos could hightail it back, get showered, get dressed, and get out of the building before there could be some kind of explosion in the locker room. So knowing that, it makes sense. It's cool. Uh, Also getting to see the Brain Busters in there is awesome. They had such a short run in the WWE, but man, they were great. Uh, Arn Anderson does a spine buster on Shawn Michaels, and that spot alone is worth watching this match. So many good wrestling Moments because you had just so many good workers in that ring that it was impossible for it not to be a good match. It is a very long match, it's north of 40 minutes. And there is uh, one moment in particular where I just start to think, All right, this match is starting to drag a little, let's pick it up. And as soon as I had that thought, the next elimination happened. I was satiated and we continued with the good pace of it. A lot of time for everyone to work and do their thing in the ring, and just a lot of fun. Heading into the top three now, we go to number three, 1995, the Underdogs versus the Body Donnas, the opening match. And before I get into this match, I want to say that 1995 gets shit on a lot. And usually for good reason. 1995, the meat of it was undoubtedly crap. WrestleMania 11, King of the Ring 95, SummerSlam 95, all sucked i will not try to make excuses i will not try to apologize for them this was i was eight years old at the time so i could not have been a bigger wrestling fan and looking back on it the tv was crap the pay-per-views are crap except for the bookends royal rumble 95 and survivor series 95 were great and this to me was the best match on the card this was the best match from 1995 period, besides maybe the Royal Rumble match of 1995 itself. Uh, you had some people that would be considered not jobbers, but people were not taking seriously. Uh, Rad Radford, Barry Horowitz, Tom Pritchard, Bob Holly, before he was Hardcore Holly. Uh, but you look at the rest of the people on that list. You had Marty Jannetty, who was an on-again, off-again, underdog babyface. Uh, Hakushi, about half a year into his run with the company. Hakushi's another one that I don't think they got nearly, they should have gotten so much more out of Hakushi than they did. And I have a hard time blaming Hakushi for that. I gotta put most of the blame on WWE and creative. Um, but this was a, a great opportunity for Hakushi. He was still in that mid card spoiler spot. Uh, on the flip side for the heels, you had Skip. Uh, who's, or who was the body Donna was sunny and that original skip and sunny run, I think was probably the best part of 1995. And I'll fight anybody on that. Um, they just, I, I loved them. I, they were so, so fun to hate. You love to hate them and they were great. Uh, but this really, amongst all that other stuff that's happening, this really was about cementing the heel turn of the one, two, three kid uh psycho sid comes down it's a showcase for the million dollar corporation which is courting the one two three kid at the time Uh, and again million dollar corporation i think was one of the few bright spots of 1994 1995 so we're kind of seeing the best that 1995 had to offer all in this one match uh along with sean and brett doing their thing like i'm not gonna skip out on that Um, but there's a great moment where skip does the Ric Flair face plant and it might be the best face plant that I've ever seen better than Flair ever did it. It's so funny. Go watch it. This is a match that exceeds all of the expectations that you could have. If you know all of these guys, if you know, none of these guys, you turn this match on and go, okay, what's this going to be? And then you're just floored away with incredible athletic moves, Great storytelling, like I said, you get heel turns, you get outside interference, you get all the fun bells and whistles that make a great match. And I do believe 1995 is the best Survivor Series top to bottom ever, and I'll say that. The women's match lags a little bit, uh, but again, this was 1995 where they had a Lundra Blaze and a bunch of nobody else's. So given that it was a Lundra Blaze and a bunch of nobodies, I thought... Every single match on this card delivered. Moving to number two, we're going to the top two Survivor Series matches of all time. And this could really be 1A and 1B for me. I love both of these matches, but I'm going to put at the number two spot, Team Austin versus Team Bischoff, 2003 Survivor Series. Stone Cold's career is on the line. I love when matches have some importance to them where there's something on the line, where there's stakes. It's hard to do in a Survivor Series match, but it's been done a couple times really successfully, and this is one. We're fighting for Steve Austin's career. Uh, on one side, we've got Team Bischoff, Mark Henry, Randy Orton, Chris Jericho, Christian, Scott Steiner. On the other side, for Stone Cold Steve Austin's team, you got the Dudley Boys, Rob Van Dam, Booker T, and Shawn Michaels. Talk about just an absolutely great lineup, man. Though That's two very, very stacked teams, so we're starting great right away. Uh, one thing that happens in this match that happens in a lot of Survivor Series matches, especially more recently, is why do we have to have the revenge elimination spot? Uh, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but if you don't, it's like a guy from Team A uh, pins a guy from Team B, but then immediately that guy gets pinned by Team B, so we have two eliminations, one from each side. To me, it's just a cheap storytelling tactic to you know, sort of speed things up. And I think it could be done in a lot of different ways, uh, double count out or disqualification or something. But um, it, to me, it's just it, it's sloppy storytelling and you always see it coming. So I don't like that. This match did have that. It's probably about the only knock against the this match. But there were so many cool setups to the finish that it was amazing. Uh, everybody piling on Mark Henry to keep him down. Um, again, I'm not sure why the ref would count this, but in Survivor Series, we just have generally accepted rules that are very strange, like you don't try to break up a pinfall, or multiple people can pile on a guy and help try to get him pin. But you got the Mark Henry spot. You got Jericho pushing Rob Van Dan off of the top rope to set up essentially an RKO. It was a cool little moment. Devon does a great flying headbutt, which he always does. There's good storytelling. This is, it's, I just, I like, I like the way this story plays. One team gets a big advantage. That advantage gets chipped away by the opposing team. And we get to a spot where there, are they going to lose their lead? They got this big lead. Are they going to lose? It's going to happen. The star of this match is Shawn Michaels. It's not even a question. He was a bloody mess And he worked, man. That guy worked in this match. He had been back for three years at this point, Survivor Series 2002. Or excuse me, a year at this point. Survivor Series 2002 was his return uh, to the ring in the Elimination Chamber match. And then this was the following year, his return to Elimination matches. He has more Elimination matches than anybody. I believe he has 11, I'm pretty sure is the number. Uh, So Shawn Michaels, definitely a Survivor Series uh, mainstay. And in this match, we see why. Because it's just—it's a beautiful piece of work and storytelling that Shawn Michaels does. And all of these are great matches. They fall just shy of the number one spot. Before we get to the number one spot, let me do a real quick recap. Your, your honorable mentions are the uh, Ric Flair-Roddy Piper 4-on-4 match from 1991. The 1995 wildcard match. Then going into number ten, Nation Domination versus Ken Shamrock's team from '97, the Women's Triple Threat match from 2019, Team Authority versus Team Cena 2013, Rude's Brood versus Rowdy's Rod- Roddy's Rowdies. Easy for me to say. In 1989, The Million Dollar Team versus the Dream Team from 1990, Undertaker's debut, Raw versus SmackDown men's match 2016. The 10 team elimination match from 1988. Number three, the 1995 Underdogs versus Body Donna's. Number two, Team Austin versus Team Bischoff from 2003. And the number one Survivor Series match, traditional Survivor Series match of all time, 2001 Team WWE versus the Alliance. Again, same with number two, where Austin's career was on the line. These have real, tangible stakes probably never been higher in a survivor series match we're coming off the invasion angle this is sort of the culmination of that invasion angle which had a I, there there. that storyline could have been so much better but it was bookended with really good matches and this was sort of the last chapter in that storyline they're fighting for control of where the company Steph and Shane are trying to overthrow their dad Shane put his ownership of WCW on the line against Vince's ownership of WWE Uh, the lineup is absolutely stacked I'd say it's even better than the Austin Bischoff match from 2003 on team WWE you've got Big Show Kane Undertaker Jericho the Rock and then the alliance had Shane McMahon Kurt Angle, Booker T, Rob Van Dam, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, I liked this for a lot of reasons. I liked the irony of The Rock. He was the current WCW champion, and he was fighting for Team WWF, and Austin was the current WWF champion, and he was fighting for the Alliance. That was really fun. Um, Going against traditional Survivor Series storytelling, I love the fact that Shane McMahon goes in and especially the early stages of the match, breaks up every single pinfall attempt that happens when his team is in danger. And as the owner of WCW with everything to lose, it makes absolute sense that he would be in there at every opportunity, breaking up everything that he possibly could. Uh, it just it, it, It's cohesive, sensical storytelling, and that makes for great, great matches. You have JR and Paul Heyman on commentary. They're a great duo. Um, there was a sort of awkward funny botch it wasn't dangerous but it's sort of an awkward botch between austin and jericho at some point in a, a spot off the ropes where i don't think either of them knew what either of them were supposed to do and it was very obvious but it was funny Uh match came down to austin and the rock as it should uh given that time or any time you had the two biggest stars going for it uh you've got several turns that again seem to happen for no reason Uh, They get explained later on, but in the moment, they're a huge what-the-fuck-did-I-just-see moment, and that's always good. The Who's going to control the future of the wrestling industry angle made everything seem so important. Everyone was so into it. I don't think there was a bad performance by any of these guys. All of them got pretty good amount of time to work, and this, to me, is just what a Survivor Series match should be about. Great eliminations, well-paced, good timing, shocking moments. It checks every single box. Anything that you could want from a Survivor Series match, this has, and it's it's done so well. I'm I could watch this match over and over again and not get sick of it. It's even still upon. I've probably watched that match seven to ten times now in my life, and it's still just the the weight of it holds, and it's so captivating. And like I said, if there's one match that you're gonna watch. Uh, to get yourself in the spirit of Survivor Series, I would recommend 2001 Team WWE versus The Alliance. And that's pretty much it. That's what we're going to talk about this week. I'm going to do a Survivor Series prediction uh, show as we get closer to the date. Um, The teams are just now kind of being finalized, but there's a lot of other stuff to hash out. Once we know the card a little bit better, I'm going to do a recording on that. I'm also going to do the long-awaited Interview with Giuseppe Colona, uh, the uh, owner and promoter for uh, Rising Action Pro. Uh, we were supposed to do this a long time ago, and then you know Corona happened, and we stopped doing live events, so it didn't really seem to make a lot of sense. But I'm going to talk to him, pick his brain a little bit as the owner of a and promoter of a company. Try to get a lot of you know behind the scenes. Uh, ideas as far as what goes into putting on a show, promoting a show, how do you book talent, how do you fill out a card, uh, the the obstacles in running live events, all that stuff. Uh, so if you have any questions that you would like me to ask, please, please reach out to me on social media, either uh, Facebook or Twitter, at Closet Champ. Send me a message there or just respond uh, to one of my posts uh, with something that you'd like to know about what it's like for a pro wrestling promoter. Uh, he's a great guy. He runs a great company. Uh, I've known him for uh, about a year now. And like I said, it, it's a re- very, very impressed with him and what he does. So looking forward to that. That'll probably be toward the end of the month, maybe even at the beginning of December. But we got some big things planned as we kind of come to a culmination of the first year of Closet Champion podcasts. I want to thank everybody so much for going on this journey with me. I recently passed the 1,000 listen mark, which is a pretty low benchmark by a lot of podcast standards. But you know, just for some guy doing this in his living room with very little equipment and no marketing ability—well, marketing ability, no marketing money—I'm uh, so proud and so humbled and grateful that all of you continue to listen and support the podcast. It means the world to me. Uh, until next time, I am your reigning, rarely defending. Highly disputed champion of wrestling podcast, Mike Mueller. I'm taking the count out loss one more time and getting out of here with my belt. Good night, everybody. Mm.